Well, it's good to open God's Word with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to take it out. Turn with me to the book of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, here in just a moment I'll be in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the book of 1 John in that Bible on the pew in front of you. We're going to be referring back to this passage numerous times, so I'd encourage you to stay there. We're going to continually look back at other verses and analyze what we read from God and how can we best interpret and apply this word to our lives. Uh, 1 John, it's almost at the very end of your Bible, if you're not familiar with the way a Bible's laid out. Uh, John wrote numerous books in the New Testament. Uh, the Gospel of John is a fairly large one. 1 John, though, I have a little one in front of it as you go to it in your Bibles toward the end of the entire Bible. 1 John chapter 3, here in just a moment. Now today as we look at our passage, John speaks to us and God speaks to us on hatred and love. Now these are two topics that I feel like we've heard so much about in numerous ways, not just in church but in culture, our entire lives. But the question is, do we really know what these things are? Hatred and love. We say them all the time. But how do we accurately define them, and who gets to define them? How are we supposed to know what love actually is? I would challenge you and say that you have probably gotten so many false ideas throughout your life on what love is from numerous sources. From as far back as I can remember, I have been getting Disney's definition of love piped right into my ears over and over and over again. And I, I'm telling you, Disney doesn't even know. Because it's changed over the years. You just follow the course of the popular Disney movies, and their definition of love is not what it used to be. They are not giving off the same definition that they used to give. In some ways, it is better today than it used to be even when we were growing up as kids. In some ways, it's worse. But everybody has their own definition of love and of hatred and we have gotten many wrong. But these are two things that are common to every human being's experience, is it not? All of us feel the need to love and be loved. All of us have probably experienced hatred and yet want to avoid it, at least toward most people. And so how do we define these things? Well, we take our definitions from God and not from any other source. And so I want to draw your attention to our passage this morning where John contrasts hatred and love and helps us to rightly think about these two things. Starting in verse 11, let's read our passage. 1 John 3, verse 11. We're going to go down to verse 18 today. In verse 11 he writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods 
and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here in this passage, John presents to us two ways to live. There are two ways to live. There is the way of hatred and the way of love. But he doesn't describe them only in those terms. He gives us some insight into what these things truly are. These are two ways to live, and they are contrasted as opposites. And I want to take them in turn. First, we will be looking at the first way to live, taking from the lives of others for yourself. Taking from the lives of others for yourself. This is the way of hatred. This is the way, John says, and God says, of murder. Taking from the lives of others for yourself. Cain is the ultimate example here. And second, we will look at giving your own life for the good of others. And Jesus is the ultimate example and the second way to live. So let's take them in turn. First, taking from the lives of others. The first way to live, taking from the lives of others. Now, Cain is the prime example here. So look back in your text. Did you see it? In verse 12, John said, We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, we need to get some context here, right? This story comes all the way back from Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 2. I'd like to read you a portion of that story, just so you can get a sense of what John's talking about here. This is the story of Cain and Abel. We have Adam and Eve, the first human beings to ever walk the earth, and Cain and Abel are the second generation to ever walk the earth. Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. So in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 2, we read this. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And thus, the first murder in the history of the world, Cain killing his brother Abel. So John says, do not be like Cain. And he also says, Cain murdered his brother, and he gives a reason. Did you see that there? In verse 12 of 1 John 3, verse 12, John says the reason Cain murdered his brother is because his own deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. Now, you might be asking yourself this question, because this is what I asked myself when I read that story. Wait a second. What about Cain's deed was evil? I didn't see anything, any comment in there about why Cain's offering was not accepted and Abel's was. Why is Cain's action evil and Abel's action was righteous in this sense? Well, there's only one other place in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, in fact, when it speaks of Cain and Abel, and it's in Hebrews 11. 
Okay, Hebrew, don't turn there, just stay in 1 John, but you'll see this up on the screen. Hebrews 11. This is the chapter that we sometimes call the Hall of Faith, these great heroes of the faith, and it goes through all these different things that people did by faith. And in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it talks about Abel. He's one of the heroes of faith. And it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So we learn one thing from that passage, and it's this. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, implying Cain did not. Abel offers the sacrifice by faith. Cain does not offer his sacrifice by faith. And so what can we deduce from what little information we have in Scripture? Well, 1 John tells us Cain's actions were evil and Abel's righteous. Hebrews tells us Abel offered his by faith and Cain did not. And Genesis tells us Abel offered what seems to be the first and best of his offering. And it seems to me that Cain probably kept back what was best and gave God his leftover. Now, this is an inference. This is not a clear teaching of Scripture. This is our best guess. But what we do know, what we do know is that Cain ended up murdering Abel because his own deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. And so John says, do not be like Cain who murders his brother. Now, what is John really getting at here? Is he simply saying, don't be a murderer? Cain murdered his brother. Don't be like that. Don't murder people. That's simple enough. We can all obey that one, right? Well, no. He's getting at something deeper, something more common to the human experience. Look at 1 John 3, verse 15 again. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now notice how John switches from Cain and Abel as brothers, in that sense, to everyone who hates his brother. It's not talking about your male siblings. It's talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And so now we're going a little bit deeper. We've equated murder and hatred here. And so when he says, do not be like Cain, he means don't hate your brother in your heart because that makes you like Cain. That makes you a murderer. If you hate your brother in your heart, Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 5. You remember Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus starts talking about murder and adultery? And he starts saying, these are not just sins of the hands. These are not just outward sins. You can sin with your thoughts. You can sin in your heart. If you have hatred towards someone else, you can be guilty of the same judgment that a murderer will be guilty of. And so hatred is murder. Those things are connected here. But you might say, well, I don't feel hatred toward anyone right now. So this doesn't apply to me. I'm good. This hatred that John is speaking of is not like the hatred we think of today. We often think of this rage against someone, this seething anger where we're plotting to destroy this person's life. All right? That's what we typically think of when we think of hatred. But John is saying here, and God is saying, 
a lack of concern for others is also hatred. A lack of concern for others is also hatred. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17. In verse 17, John says, of this first way to live, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That is a person who is not living in love. They are living in hatred. They are living like Cain as a murderer. And it's not this seething anger. It's not this desire to destroy someone's life or make them feel pain. It's just a lack of concern. Now we're on dangerous ground. Now we're on dangerous ground because John has not only equated murder with hatred, but he has equated hatred with just a lack of concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's making that connection. These are in the same category. So it's not a spectrum. You don't have the really, really bad over here, and then, well, I'm I'm more over here. I'm not as bad. Yeah, I'm kind of bad, but I'm not as bad. No, no, no. All right, there are two ways to live. The way of Cain and the way of Jesus. The way of murder and the way of love. The way of hatred and the way of self-sacrifice. So either you are sacrificing yourself for others or you are taking from others for yourself And that is murder. That's being like Cain. A lack of concern for other people is what we're talking about here. A lack of concern. A self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is a life of hatred and murder to others. Self-centeredness that we might not have thought was that bad is a life of hatred and murder of others, John says. You are taking life away instead of laying it down and giving it. So Cain, for instance, was self-centered. In all his interactions with others, his goal was himself. And so when those interactions didn't increase his own comfort or pleasure, he couldn't handle it. When God rebuked him for his sacrifice, he couldn't accept the criticism and improve. Instead, he got angry. Are we like Cain? Can we accept interactions from others that don't make us feel better about ourselves? Can we accept a rebuke from someone else? When God accepted Abel's sacrifice, Cain couldn't rejoice with his brother. Instead, he got jealous and he did something about it. This is the way of hatred. It is the way of self-centeredness. And John equates it with murder, being like Cain. And so what does this look like in the real world today? Let me give you just a few pictures of this. It looks like when someone else gets that job that you were going for, and then you refuse to speak to them. It looks like when a sibling gets more than you in the family will, and you hold a grudge against them for it. It looks like when a poor person asks you for help, and your first reaction is disgust and eye-rolling. It looks like racism. It looks like vilifying anyone who identifies with the political party opposite yours. It's when the church down the road starts growing and thriving, and all we can do is point out all the reasons why they're not a good church. And it also looks like when a family in the church needs help, and we think 
I'm sure someone else will do it. This is the way of Cain, the way of self-centeredness. God says it is the way of murderers. But there is a second way to live. And the second way is the opposite of murder. It's giving your life for the good of others. Giving your life for the good of others as opposed to taking from the lives of others for the good of yourself. It's giving your life for the good of others. This is the opposite of murder. It's voluntarily laying down your life for the good of others. And this is what John means when he says love. This is what John means when he says love in this passage. Voluntarily laying down our lives for the good of others. Now, I want you to notice in your passage how often John uses the term brothers. Did you see that? How often he uses the term brothers. Look at it with me again. Look at verse 13. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Verse 14, we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And verse 17, if we close our heart against our brother in need. Right? He says it over and over and over and over again. Brother, brother, brother. What's the big deal with this? Right? Now this word, brother, comes from a Greek word, adelphoi. Now what does that mean? Nothing to most of you. But adelphoi was sometimes a way to talk about male siblings. Sometimes. But most of the time in Scripture, when you see that word, adelphoi, it means the people in the family of God, male or female. doesn't matter. It's just a colloquial way of speaking. So, for instance, Paul will sometimes say, we are all sons of God. doesn't matter if you're male or female, you're a son of God. Right? In the Old Testament, sometimes it would say man, and it just means all men and women. Right? The same is true here when we read brothers. This is brothers and sisters in Christ. This is people within your church family. And so, what we see from that is the mark of a true believer is a self-sacrificing commitment to the family of God. The mark of a true believer is a self-sacrificing commitment, not just to everyone in general, but to the family of God. And a lack of commitment to your brothers and sisters in the church is a warning sign that you might not be a true believer. Now hear me on this this morning. A lack of commitment to your brothers and sisters in the church is a warning sign. It's a warning sign this morning that you might not be a true believer because the mark of a true believer is a self-sacrificing commitment to the brothers, the family of God. Now, does this mean we're saying, hey, you don't have to love anybody else. You only have to love the people who are members of this church. That is not what the Bible is saying. All right, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says, love, those as, love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Right? But John is saying right here, a mark of a true believer is a self-sacrificing commitment to a specific people, the family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have. And our ultimate example here is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example here, just like Cain was the example of the first way to live. Jesus is the example here. Look back at 16 with me. Verse 16, it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, by this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us. By this we know love. The NIV says this is how we know what love is. Right? My wife and I had this displayed up on the screen during our wedding. This is how we know what love is. How do you even know what love is? Jesus Christ on the cross. Who defines love? Who gets to define love? There are so many today who will take their definition of love from the culture because they have nowhere else to get it. They have nowhere else to get a definition of love. And so they will take whatever definition they are being fed from the culture. My friends, I'm asking you to see how ridiculous that is this morning, to take your definition of love from a culture that has a different definition of love than it used to have only maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. We live in 2019, but our definition of love in America today is not the same as the definition of love that people in Africa had in the 1920s. And their definition of love was probably not the same as people in the Middle East had in the 400s and 500s. We cannot take our definition from love or hatred from a culture that is ever-changing that you can tell even just by watching some movies, they don't even know what they believe. They're just going with whatever wind blows. Our culture says real love today is refusing to ever say that someone is wrong. That's real love. Just refuse to ever say that anyone is wrong on anything. Our, our culture says real love is when a parent respects their little kid's decision to dress and act like a different gender than they actually are. Our culture says real love is fueling someone's self-worth. Just make them feel better about themselves. That's real love. Our culture says real love is listening to your heart and being true to your feelings. Our culture says real love is supporting anyone who is expressing themselves. As long as they're expressing themselves, true love is supporting whatever that is. But John says, no, this is how you define love. Jesus laid down his life for us at the cross. This is how we know what love is. God is the one who defines love, and he defined it at the cross. Love has a name now. It's Jesus. Love has a name. And so true love is self-sacrifice for the good of others. It's laying your own life down for other people, putting the needs and wants of others ahead of your own. Real love is bearing one another's burdens. You see someone else with a burden, and you get in so close to make that burden your own too. True love is being willing to be inconvenienced, being willing to be put out, even being willing to be stepped on for the good of others. Being willing to be stepped on. You might say, oh, no one's going to walk all over me. Jesus let people kill him. Jesus is our ultimate example. The attitude that no one is going to walk all over me is anti-Christ. Sometimes we need to let people walk all over us for the good of others. True love is being willing to be wronged and unfairly treated if it will save the relationship. Being willing to give up money and possessions. Being willing to take a risk and rebuke someone in sin to possibly save them from walking away from the Lord. 
This is what real love looks like as defined by Christ on the cross. In John chapter 15, the same author who wrote this book wrote, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John records that in his gospel. And Jesus says that. It comes from the mouth of Jesus. There's no greater love than someone laying down their life. In Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul tells husbands to love their wives, what does he tell them? He says, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so how do we love our wives as husbands? We lay our lives down for them. We serve them. We put their needs and wants ahead of our own. We make their burdens our burdens. We give and give and give and give and give and give and give. That's how we love our wives. And so this is true love as defined by Scripture. And so what does this kind of love look like in the real world? What does it look like in the real world? Well, I'll tell you one way that it looks. I'd say it was 10 years ago. My granddad came up to me at a family gathering and said, I need to speak with you in private. And he had tears coming down his eyes. My granddad's passed on now. He used to be a preacher. He was a preacher right over here, actually, right outside of Glasgow for about 40 years. He had tears coming down his eyes, and he was confronting me because he disagreed with me theologically on something. He thought the thing that I was believing in was unbiblical. And he confronted me about it, and he rebuked me on it. But as he did so, he had tears coming down his eyes. And I knew right away why, because he was so afraid of ruining our relationship, but he knew he had to say something, because his commitment to God and to my well-being was greater than his commitment to making us feel comfortable with one another. And so he rebuked me. He called me to account. He tried to bring me back from a way that he thought was going against the Bible, and against God. That's true love. Caring more about someone's eternal state than you do about everything being nice and tidy around the the Thanksgiving table. It looks like a family giving up half their vacation fund to help some struggling parents with medical bills. True love looks like a retired wife adopting a single mom in the church, even though she knows it's going to be messy, but she wants to teach that young mom wise living habits, and make sure that her needs are met. True love looks like a family putting two more seats around the table at Thanksgiving for the singles in their church, because they're part of their family, even though they don't share the same last name. It's like the family I met at Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago, who take every single Tuesday out of their week and hold a dinner at their house, standing invite. They don't know who's coming the next week, but they have every single Tuesday, in a sense, tithed, to the Lord, saying, anytime we meet someone in the church and we say, hey, we should get together sometime, well, we've got a concrete date when we're actually going to get together. So why don't you come on Tuesday? Don't worry about cooking. We take care of all the food. We're giving every single Tuesday around our family table to the Lord and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Looks like a husband and a wife who decide to sell their stuff, move to a third world country, learn a language they've never spoken just so people might come to Christ and be saved. And true love, loving the brothers, looks like a young man mowing the yard of a widow in the church every week for free. True love is 
self-sacrifice. The way of Cain is the way of hatred and murder. But you don't have to be a murderer to walk that way. All you have to be is self-centered. The way of Christ is self-sacrifice. They're exact opposites. Murder is the taking of a life. Self-sacrifice is the giving of your own life. Murder is taking from others for your own good. The way of self-sacrifice, the way of Christ, is giving of yourself for the good of others. And so I ask you this morning, do you know this man who showed us the second way? Jesus, verse 16 says, laid down his life for us so that we could have a new family. Jesus laid down his life for you so that you could have a new family, a family of people who will lay down their lives for you. This is what we're putting out to the rest of the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, that Jesus laid down his life for people who don't know him so that they could have a new family and so that when they become part of this family, they know we're going to lay down our lives for them. If you are in here this morning and you do not know Christ, that is what we are offering this morning. And yeah, it's a high standard that we're going to have to live up to, those of us in the Columbia Christian Church. If you want to come to Christ and you want to be a part of the Columbia Christian Church, we're telling you we're going to be your new family. We're going to lay down our lives for you. But Jesus didn't just die so that you could have others lay down their lives for you. He died for you so you could begin to lay down your life for others, and in so doing, find the greatest satisfaction that the world has ever known. Let's pray. Our great God, you have shown us what love is. It is Jesus. Jesus is love. Jesus is the embodiment of your love. God, I pray that this love would take over our hearts. I pray that you would help us to not live this self-centered lifestyle that we all struggle with. Break the power of selfishness and sin over our hearts. Break it with the power of Christ and his self-giving love so that we could have a self-giving love. God, I pray that you would break the power that Satan has over people's minds and hearts this morning, that people would come to know Jesus, that they would see your glory and your goodness in the gospel, that if there is anyone here this morning who needs to know Christ, they would not walk out that door until they have at least talked to someone about coming to know this love, this way of self-sacrifice that is alien to anyone outside of Christ. I pray that if, if anyone is here this morning that does not know the love of Christ, you would expose the lies that Satan has gotten them to believe about hatred and love and themselves, and you would show them the glory of your truth in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.